Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. Whether you're a housing consumer, raider, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you want to hear about the evolving trends in home energy ratings, and we're here to tell you about them. Interest in net zero and low carbon homes is sweeping across the country. And what drives consumers and customers in some smaller cities to ask for a net zero or net zero plus home? And how can a builder achieve these customer desires in a city that limits the options to energy retrofits of homes that are up to a century old? In this podcast, we chat with Dan Welch, founder of Bundle Design Studios, a business that grew out of his master's work in architecture school. Dan walks the talk, living and working from a net zero energy, water, and waste home, the first residence in Bellingham, Washington, which elected to include no water or sewer connections. Dan is driven by strong ethics of environmental and social equity, and he enjoys synthesizing client goals, clean aesthetics, and rigorous building science into beautiful and cohesive products. In 2020, Bundle proudly delivered a home with a HERS score of minus 51. Now, Dan will share with us some of his methods he used to achieve these low scores as he takes us on a tour through the way he does business in his market, including factors in customer education, products, and skilled labor. Let's listen in to a conversation with Dan Welch of Bundle Design. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. So bundle design, that sounds like warm and embracing. <laughs> so tell me where that name came from. That's unique. Bundle design, it was actually part of my master's thesis in architecture school. And the whole thought behind it was that I was really interested in comprehensive building design. Most of the architects that I had studied under and worked with in previous experiences always really focused on the architecture exclusively. But there were a lot of elements that were outside of that capital A architecture that really have a big impact on building. So bundle was this concept where we're trying to bring as many of the disciplines under one roof as possible. So having a really strong interest in HVAC design, high performance design, interior design, landscape design, everything that really makes buildings buildings. I felt should be under not necessarily one roof, but definitely coordinated under one roof. And so that's where the name came from, is a desire to have a holistic approach to building design. Very clever. Very nice. So talk a little bit about your background. Introduce yourself to our listeners. This must be something that's in you that caused you to go this direction. Yes and no, actually. My background's pretty varied, to be honest. I started off as a fine arts major in undergrad, actually pre-med and then pre-engineering and then fine arts. So I had this like really analytic background, but then this desire to have a lot of creativity in my life as well. To satisfy my parents, I also coupled a teaching certificate along with that. So I graduating from undergrad, I had a fine arts and teaching certificate. So I was actually applying to masters of fine arts programs around the nation. And to be honest, not being very successful at being accepted. So I applied to architecture school on a whim because I was living next door to a timber frame builder. And it just really caught my interest, this, this kind of blending of the analytical thinking and this product that you could create that's creative. So I ended up going to the University of British Columbia for architecture school. And it just ended up being a perfect fit for me with that balance because I still love art, but I can honestly admit that I'm not the greatest artist in the world. This was a really great blend for me. And so I went to architecture school there at UBC. After school, I 
was hired by a, a great small firm here in a small town of Mount Vernon, Henry Klein Partnership, HKP Architects. And most of my work there was more public work. So doing schools, universities, so much bigger projects. And that was right around the downturn of the market in 2008. So work was thin. We had a couple of big projects in schools that were holding us over. But come 2012, the work was still fairly thin. So it was my opportunity to step away from the public work and start focusing more on residential work. And my reasoning for doing that was twofold. One, I really like the public work, but it's not a very intimate relationship with your clients. You have a lot of bureaucracy that you have to go through, which is justified, but a lot of bureaucracy nonetheless. And so I wanted more of an intimate design relationship with my projects and my clients. And then secondly, because it was public work, tax dollars are taken very seriously. Most of the time it was a low bidder situation. So most of the really interesting work for me was, were those sustainable strategies and net zero energy strategies and unfortunately, those are always the first to get cut out of a project in a public setting. And so in 2013, I started Bundle and ended up building a house for my family as kind of our flagship project to show how we wanted to build within the community. That's a statement. <laughs> yeah. And then that was my opportunity to kind of show exactly how I thought building should be built. One, as that kind of business card, but two because all of my work was also public work. So I didn't really have any examples to show residential clients that I could build a really great house for them. Looking at a 70,000 square foot campus center is hard to sell somebody on a single family house or a multifamily house, right? There's just quite a stretch of imagination there. <laughs> exactly. But so that original house is still very relevant today, followed a lot of passive house strategies, work with a lot of suppliers and a lot of great organizations to make that house what it is. So we still use it as an example here in the office as the types of buildings that we want to build today. And so we've just built off of that first project as a building type. Now, let's set for the listeners where you're operating out of. Some things about the market, the climate, the labor pool available, things like that. We design hyper-locally here in Bellingham, Washington, so we're about an hour and a half north of Seattle. Climate zone 4C, so we're a, a mixed marine climate, so fairly mild, but we also have our own constraints with a lot of moisture, a lot of rain, but overall, fairly mild. 40 degrees in the wintertime is about as cold as we get, except for maybe one or two weeks a year. So it's a very workable climate from a building design standpoint. We don't have a lot of the like really difficult constraints like super hot and humid climates or like Minnesota negative 40 degrees in the wintertime kind of climates either. Again, it's a really great, especially if you're looking at passive house projects, it's very manageable. What's the interest level in passive house? Are people, or you have to pull people in or are you getting drawn into quote situations? A little bit of both. So from our own design. So we do a lot of design work for ourselves, but then we also do a lot of consulting for other architects and designers as well. And for our own design work, again, we have that flagship project that we built initially. So we have a very specific clientele that come to us for that type of work. So it's not really a hard sell for those clients. That said, we have some of our own projects as well that are just help to keep the doors open. And we work really hard to educate the clients as to best 
building science practices and why we might want to add things like exterior insulation, better air sealing, proper whole house ventilation, those kinds of things. So we work really super hard to educate those clients and try and find a lot of manipulations within the building design to get all of those elements within a building under a specific budget. And that's probably the hardest part. It's because not we aren't doing million dollar and multi-million dollar projects. These are run-of-the-mill, middle-class projects. And so the budget constraints are real and people want to do the best things that they can for themselves and the planet and all of that. But money is not infinite for these clients. So we have to weigh things and lots of times make compromises that we normally wouldn't want to make, but do it to still get that high performance out of the building. I talk about this a little bit in the podcast as we just completed a high performance home, moved in late last year. And in order to get something done, you have to have a budget and pay for it. Otherwise, all you have are concepts. Exactly. <laughs> That's important there. The focus of this episode is congratulations. Your company achieved one of the lowest HERS scores in 2020. Thank you. Yeah, it was a surprise, actually. And our HERS rater actually sent us a note afterwards and was like, this is the lowest score I've ever reported on. This is the lowest testing I've ever done. So we were pleasantly surprised because it wasn't one that really stuck out to us as like a really exceptionally high on the performance scale. But the high performance coupled with renewables allows you to get down there quite a bit. And that's exactly what we focus on, both within our own design work, but then we also do a lot of nonprofit work on decarbonizing the building sector. This is what ended up being a perfect example for what we're doing both professionally and part of our pro bono nonprofit work. So the actual score itself, you want to share that score and then the componentry of it, how much was renewables, et cetera? Oh, geez, you caught me. I, I don't know off the top of my head. I want to say it's like negative 50. Negative 51 is what I saw. 51. 51, yeah. okay. Okay. About just a ballpark, how much of that was driven by renewables? Quite a bit. They do have a fairly large solar system on there. I want to say it's a 10K system. Okay. And it's a fairly small house off the top of my head. I want to say it's like 1,200 square feet. So are they net metering? Yes. How's the market for that? Because it varies across the US, the ability to do net metering and sort of the benefit from it. Definitely. It's an interesting one because most of our clients, we typically design the solar system to match the energy use of the house. And these clients just wanted to have a much larger system. One, to anticipate future loads, such as they had one electric car right now, but they're potentially going to look at another one. And so just looking at loads down the road and trying to anticipate a little bit more usage, but with the amount of solar that they have on, they'll definitely be able to power those cars plus a little bit more. But the net metering scene here in Washington State is such that you do get paid back for what you use, but nothing beyond that. So that's where the conversation with the clients comes into anticipating those future loads. And then how much do you just want to donate to the grid? So these clients are on the side that they just wanted a big solar system and they end up donating a lot to the grid. And that happens with not a lot of our projects, but a fair number. Even that flagship project that we built first off, I'd say we donate 35 to 40% to the grid most of the time. Yeah, that's very different than we have here in Pennsylvania. We get actually paid back at the cost of generation, which is a fraction of it. So we do up until the end of your usage. 
For example, like our Birch case study house, the one that we built first off, that has a 9.2K system, but we only use about 55 to 6K a year. And so we get paid back up to that 5,500 or 6K, and then everything beyond that is donated. Got it. Got it. Okay. But the incentives and the price of solar is just changing constantly. And so that's a big factor as well. Like in Washington State, we used to have what's called the production credit. So we used to get a $5,000 check in the mail every year for that production credit. But that has gone away. But now with political changes that we've seen recently, that might come back pretty soon as well. So the incentives ebb and flow. The cost of solar just keeps dropping through the floor. So it's becoming much easier. That said, it sets up a really interesting conversation within the building industry as well, though. Because as that price of solar just keeps dropping and dropping the discussion on the importance of building science and having a really good assembly also significantly changes because now people are just like, well, I'll put in a mini split heat pump and put a bunch of solar on my roof and it'll cost me less than putting on exterior insulation or having triple pane windows or doing those kinds of things. And we definitely, we want to have a balance of those because we want to have a really healthy house. We want to have a really durable house. We want to have a house that's resilient especially in the face of some of the recent events like we've seen down in Texas, where we have a really well-built house and then we come back and we add, we always call it the green bling. We add those solar panels at the end to offset what we need to offset. You'd mentioned before client education. Do you use any specific resources, those of your own generation or any kind of resources you can share in order to move clients along in the process of thinking the way you think? Definitely. Every day that goes on, it becomes easier. We really gauge the clients and what their media style is or uptake of information is. And again, because the media market is so robust right now, it's pretty easy to provide clients exactly the style of information and education that they need to make those decisions. So we have everyone from scientists that are very analytical and want the data and want all that stuff. And so when we have those type of clients, we send them more data-driven information. So we rely on organizations like Building Science Corporation and RDH Building Science. So we can actually give them reports where they can look at the data and see like what's the quantitative impact of adding exterior insulation and what's it going to do for my building. But then there's also like the more media-friendly, like Matt Reisinger's been doing it for a long time, and the build network that they're putting together right now is much more friendly where we can send clients that don't really care as much about the data, but they can look at Instagram and YouTube and those kinds of things and get really fast information and very digestible information as to why you would want to add some of those elements to the project. And then we also just have some of our own stuff that we just put together about rain screens and exterior insulation, those kinds of things that also point people to some of those same organizations, but that we just have as almost like handouts for clients. Do you have any resources on your site that we could mention here and maybe have people take a look at? We don't actually have them like publicly available. Honestly, it's more internal client conversations that we have. So, And your website's bundledesignstudio.com in case people want to check it out a little bit more. It is. And a love-hate relationship with websites. We're a really small firm. We're, there's three of us. Oh, wow. So we are small. And so we wear many, many hats. So the one hat that usually gets taken off is web designer. And so we don't 
update nearly as often as we should. And again, because of the... It's new to the person seeing it for the first time. So that's cool. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But we are making a huge push to come up because we have been leaning really hard again on those more digestible media sources like Instagram to post a lot about our project. So I'd say if people want to see what we're doing right now, I would say Instagram's probably the best because it's really easy for us to point a phone at a project and make a few comments. And then we'll do a more formal push coming up here in the spring to get a lot of those projects that have been on Instagram onto the website with a little more information. Got it. It's a little bit easier to get up there quickly. Maybe in particular for this house or maybe just in general, what are the details that you sweat over the most when you're doing your work? This project in particular, this was a whole house remodel. And just backing up just a little bit on our demographics and the building industry climate here in Bellingham. Bellingham's about an hour and a half north of Seattle. It's about an hour south of Vancouver, B.C., So we're sandwiched between two fairly large metropolitan areas. And the impact of that, especially with COVID, is that we get quite a few people from those areas. So both our building costs and expectations from clients mirror that of the larger municipalities rather than our 80,000 person town. So One thing that's interesting about our area is that, again, we're only about 80,000 people. People move here because they want a small town feel. They don't want a big urban experience, but they also don't want to be out in the county. But because of the way the zoning is in our area, we have very limited land to build on. We have a Growth Management Act and an urban growth boundary, and there just is very little land available to build houses within the city limits. And so we're seeing that a lot of our work is turning into whole house remodels. And so this project in particular is a full whole house remodel and energy retrofit. We gutted it on both sides, basically down to the studs, no drywall on the interior and no siding on the exterior. And that gives us a lot of freedom on what we're trying to accomplish. So what I think we would sweat the most on a project like this is... When we're doing a whole house remodel, our building stock tends to be 75 to 100 years old. And so the products that we are using then compared to now are very different when looking at our expectations for performance. For example, like the exterior sheathing on most of these old buildings isn't plywood, it's not OSB, it's not any solid sheet good that we typically could use for air sealing. It's like one by 12s or shiplap or something of the sort that just has holes and gaps and everything all over the place. And so I think what we sweat the most is trying to have realistic expectations for the contractor on what an achievable air changes per hour blower or test looks like. And we do our very best to try and set it up so that they are successful. But again, it's an old house and there's a lot of unforeseen conditions and that's probably what we sweat the most. Got it, the air sealing aspect. The house with the lowest score, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Perhaps not too much personal detail, but the kind of client that came to you for this project. Sure. So yeah, the clients were from out of town and same thing. They wanted to have a house within the city limits and didn't want to be in the county. And so they found an older house and didn't really want more of a house. They just wanted the house to be fixed up and to be efficient and to be comfortable. So that kind of drove 
the whole project to try and reach those goals with uh, realistic expectations as far as what would be comparable to new construction in a lot of ways within the constraints. But so we didn't do an addition to this project. We rebuilt a little single car garage that's attached to the building. But other than that, we lived exactly within the footprint, which is what we do with most of these whole house remodels, if at all possible, and then did some really minor interior room rearranging. But tried to keep it, keep the house as is as much as possible. With these old houses, there's always a little more opening up of the floor plan than keeping the small compartmentalized rooms that were historically, that was just common back then. So we opened it up a little bit more. But then most of the design beyond that, finding a good flow in a small house like that is fairly straightforward. But most of the design beyond that was looking at the wall systems, the roof systems, and how we're going to accomplish this high-performance build. And so specifically with this one, we actually did more of an experiment on this one than we have in the past projects. We kind of stick to Dr. Joe Stebrick's perfect wall concept for most of our projects because it's a very safe wall system no matter where you're building, and it works really great for our climate in any climate, honestly, which is why it's a perfect wall. But this one, one of the things that we are constantly battling is adding exterior insulation within the budget. And that's both a labor and material cost that we're fighting because it's a whole nother trip around the building. And so what we tried with this project that was different than most of our other projects is that we looked at the materials side of that because one of the other goals that we have is to try and build as foam free as possible. We're trying to do permeable insulation and natural insulations as much as possible. And once you go to exterior insulation, those materials are available in natural products, but they're also very pricey. And so for this project, we went to some more East Coast style details for passive houses doing kind of like an outrigger system. So not like a Larson truss necessarily, because we don't need to go to those lengths here in our milder climate from a temperature standpoint but so we put two by threes on the exterior and then did bat insulation in those and then put the water resistive barrier over the top of that so that ended up being a really successful strategy because it was really fast for the contractor to put up those two by threes because it's straight off the truck from the lumber yard and go straight on the building no fabrication was necessary they just screwed them straight to the building face. And then the bat insulation goes up extremely fast as well. And so that gave us a much higher R value per dollar on the exterior of that building. So that allowed us to get R13 on the exterior at a very low cost from a material standpoint. And then new roof details, and then we just fill the floor cavity. So beyond that, fairly straightforward from an envelope standpoint. Now, you've mentioned passive house, passive house, like a couple times in our conversation. Is this a passive house? Did it get passive rated? It is not passive rated. And right now we're going through the process of everyone in the office is becoming a passive house designer right now, being certified through FIAS. We love FIAS. We love the certification. I think it takes a very special client to go through that certification process and I think that's mainly from our side and the Raiders side that makes it difficult because it is a fairly hefty additional expense. FIAS, and I'm sure PHI is the same, 
does a really great job of keeping fees low to encourage more certifications. The adoption, sure. But you still have to have somebody behind the computer. You have to have somebody behind the ratings doing the inspections. And all of those people take a lot of money just to get everything done. And behind the computer, you mean the Pesadol's planning package to plan it out and deliver the results after testing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, just getting all of that documentation and all of that energy modeling completed takes quite a bit of time. So for our clientele, we don't have a lot of certified passive houses, but we've done so many of these high-performance homes now that we're starting to fall into a rhythm of knowing what we need to do and where we need to do it that we get really high performance results without the passive house certification. We still go through and do most of the energy modeling, not to the rigorous standards that we would need to for certification for official FIA certification, but we still model it so that we know where we're at. How do you model it or what do you model it in? We model it in Woofy Passive, which is the standard for FIAS. We haven't done PHI, and you know that seems to be fairly regional as to which certification you're going through. I know up in Vancouver, BC, which is only an hour away, they're almost exclusively PHI over there. But yeah, we've committed to FIAS and really like their program. Any highlights as to the products or componentry used that you want to talk about, something that might stick out or catch somebody's eye here? Sure. Yeah, we do a lot of industry standard for the passive house scene for more production builders, or there might be a few materials that might be a little different. But for this project in particular, we do a really good sheathing tape is one that we always use and everybody has their favorite. The one that we've fallen into is called Climaguard. It's specifically sold through Small Planet Supply here in Olympia, Washington. And we also use a lot of Prosoco joint and seam sealer a really great air sealing product. And then for the exterior water-resistant barrier, which we use for air sealing as well on occasion, is a SEGA membrane. So a really high quality membrane. But one of the products that we didn't use on this project that we do use on a lot of our projects right now, especially whole house remodels that has been doing a phenomenal job at a great price point is the Henry VP100. And it's a self-adhered water-resistant barrier. And we really, really like that product because one, it does a lot of the air sealing for you rather than taping every single seam. We allow that membrane to do a lot of the work. And the other thing is we can leave it out in the weather. If we left like a lower quality non-adhesive membrane out in the weather here in the wintertime, it would blow off and then everything would just get soaked. And those self-adhesive membranes, just we can leave them in rain and wind and snow and they look as good as the day we installed it in the springtime. Multi-purpose. Yeah. I keep focusing on the building envelope. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that is fairly standard for us as far as the guts of the building too. Please. For our climate, heat pumps are just a no-brainer. There's this huge push for building electrification on the West Coast. Even within our city, there's talk of a natural gas ban for all new construction and mandatory retrofits to electric. That's a little undetermined as to when that would happen, but that might be a like point of sale. So those things might come into effect in like 2030. But so there's a lot of building electrification push here. So for us in our climate zone, heat pumps just are super easy, very cost effective. It's I don't know why anyone would put anything else in their building because I don't see a more cost effective solution and a low energy use option as well. It just doesn't make any sense to do anything different. So that's just standard. So this project in particular used, I want to say a two 
headed mini split. And then we also, because we're building very tight homes, we got to add those lungs back into the building. So we always install a Zender system. And we install Zenders for a number of reasons. One, because they're extremely quiet. They have amazing heat recovery. And in our climate, heat recovery is not the most important thing. But when it is still 40 degrees out, we like to bring in the air a little bit warmer than 40 degrees. So we do like that. But also for a whole house remodel with a 100-year-old house, the Zender system is just amazing because it is a home run system with all the ductwork. And the ducts are all three inches. So that allows us to route ductwork in areas that we would never be able to route ductwork if we were using regular rigid sheet metal ducts. We'd have to drop soffits all over the place and historical preservation and those kinds of things really come into play where we don't want to see a lot of those soffits. We have very tight tolerances where the framing is so much smaller than what we would typically build today. Like, for example, like a floor might be two by eights instead of 11 and seven eighths TGIs. So we just don't have the size to run ductwork through. And so the Zender system is just a no-brainer for us. And so we put that into all of our projects, whether it is a high performance or not. So even if it's a leaky 100-year-old, like we have a beautiful 100-year-old Victorian on our website, and we put a Zender system in that, and it is by no means a really tight house. But just fresh air delivery and being able to ventilate the entire building is so important. I think it's probably... Air sealing and ventilation, I think, are probably the two most underutilized building strategies out there right now. I think that more people need to really take a close look at their buildings and focus on those because it's good for both the building durability and longevity, as well as occupant health. There is no downside to it. And comfort. And comfort, exactly. The thing that you probably, or people probably will think about more often. (laughs) Exactly. And that's a very good point because especially in our mild climate, if we were in Minnesota or Wisconsin or something with those brutal winters, we would be talking a lot more about energy efficiency of these units and return on investment and those kinds of selling features. We don't do that here. It's almost exclusively a discussion about comfort because the ROI doesn't doesn't look so good for a lot of those. But that comfort is very important. Thank you for this really comprehensive overview. It's fun getting to know you, and I think the listeners will enjoy, hopefully they've enjoyed this as they come to a close here. One final question. Do the clients understand, appreciate, cognizant of the fourth lowest score in the country? (laughs) Are they aware of this? I don't know if they are aware. Honestly, we have not talked to them about it. We are gearing up this week to do We always have a a home and landscape tour here in our area. And with COVID, obviously, we aren't having a whole lot of public going through our buildings at this point. So we are gearing up to do more of a digital home tour. And so this will definitely be one of the talking points on that home tour as we do the 3D walkthrough of the building and talk about all the building science and everything. The clients are very modest. I don't think they'll necessarily care. I think they'll be proud, but I don't think it'll be like, I don't think they need the bragging rights. Sure for that low score. We like the bragging rights. (laughs) They're satisfied for other reasons, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Very good. Well, this has been a real pleasure, Dan. Any closing thoughts to uh, leave our listeners with? Just that 
we really need to start focusing on the decarbonization of our building sector. It's really important. And again, there's very few downsides. If we can figure out the cost perspective on most of these elements, it's a win for everybody. It's good for the planet and it's good for the buildings and it's good for the comfort of the occupants. And so I think we just really need to start focusing on a lot more of these strategies and making it available to as many people as possible, even renters. Because <laughs> that's a really hard demographic that we have right now is trying to convince landlords to invest in their buildings and their occupants. Actually, that's probably going to be, it's the working title for the episode is the future of the building industry re resides in low carbon buildings. However, we only brought that in at the very end there because there are so many other facets that compound as you spoke about. And even with the comprehensive nature of the way you go about things with it bundle and sort of in your own head, there's so many benefits that come from this as well as low carbon. All right. Thanks again for joining us, Dan, on the Res Talk podcast. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Res Talk with Dan Welch of Bundle Design. If you're a pro in the building market, you want to surf on over to resnet.us slash professional to learn more or join the email list. Here's a quote for today from Charles Eames, a U.S. businessman. The details are not the details. They make the design. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet what you heard here, would like to hear a new topic covered, or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet.us. If you want to learn more about Bundle Design, visit their website at bundledesignstudio.com. If you've not subscribed or liked or followed this podcast, we always encourage you to. And thank you for listening to Res Talk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for Res Talk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on Res Talk. Mm -hmm.